Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. Go ask Mrs. Fig about that. There's adult content in binge mode. That's what we do here. And if you don't want to hear that kind of thing, please check out Dantasy Football with the Dannys, Kelly and Heifetz. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Luna's reading the quibbler upside down, please proceed with extreme caution. Because she's a legend. And now binge mode. But this year, I'll go further. Listen closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. Though I must fulfill my duty and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. Oh, no, the perils. Read the signs. The warning history shows. For our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes. And we must unite inside her. Or we'll crumble from within. I have told you. I have warned you. Let the sorting now begin. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished downloading the Sorting Hat's latest tune on Spotify. Really dark one this time. <laughs> it's the mature Sorting Maturing, Hat. Yeah. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, the hat's branched out a bit this year, hasn't it? Much like binge mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you can see what's pulling the school carriages, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Yes. Please. Why don't you also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to know where you last saw the very talented Stubby Boardman. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter. We explored how battle lines shape chapters six through nine of Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 10 through 14. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! With details from all seven books, end date films, and the wider Potter canon. Ooh. Taking the entire series into account from the moment Professor Umbridge issues her first. <clears throat> Fuck her. Get out of here. So grab your quills, because it's time to head to detention. Mal, I have, of course, been following your fortunes most carefully over the binge holidays, and I am delighted to see that you have returned to the studio safely, as of course I knew you would. Now that you're back, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Order Chapters 10 to 14 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine to plot the Hogwarts after an anxious, stressful, and rather miserable summer for Harry, he's finally headed back to Hogwarts. Yay! Things are looking up! Yay! Or not! Oh, because when he arrives at his favorite place in the world, the anxiety and stress and misery continue. Hagrid is nowhere to be seen, and Harry's seeing strange creatures that almost nobody else can see, except for you, Luna Lovegood. Welcome. 
iconic introduction by you. Love her. And almost everyone is looking at him like he's a crazy, a loon, after a summer of pointed coverage aimed at him in the Daily Prophet. Your favorite publication. Oh, come on. Worst of all, the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, ministry witch Dolores Umbridge, refuses to let students use their wands in class. Because why would you need that? It's no need for that. And gives Harry a week of abusive, literally blood-drawing detention after he speaks up about Voldemort's return in class. No safer place than Hogwarts. Really upsetting. Extremely. Jason? Yeah? We regret that all work is undertaken at the applicant's own risk. That's good. (laughs) Good work, Fred and George. Thank you. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 10 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is Harbingers. Chapter 10, Luna Lovegood. Harry's dreams are disturbed. His parents, the sobbing Mrs. Weasley, Ron and Hermione and crowns, and again, that corridor with the locked door. What does it all mean? Harry's dreams, like all of our dreams, stem from what we've experienced. The photo of the order, the ordeal with the boggart and his best friends receiving prefect badges clearly inform this world of images. And yet, Harry's dreams are also harbingers. Weasley is our king, of course, and the corridor. The corridor in the Department of Mysteries where Harry will, spoiler, extremely sad to say this, lose his godfather. Harry's dreams aren't always normal. As we learn in time, Harry's mind lingers on this corridor because Voldemort's mind lingers on it as well. And eventually Voldemort will turn that communication pathway against Harry, using it to manipulate him and bait him into doing what he wants. And what is that pathway if not a harbinger of the ultimate truth, the ultimate connection between Harry and Voldemort, the Horcrux Voldemort never intended to make? Tough stuff. Harry Potter. Harry's waking hours are hardly any less fraught. He can't even go to King's Cross to catch the train to school without a guard. And it looks like that guard's going to include Padfoot. Snuffles. Despite Dumbledore's express wishes to the contrary. Mrs. Weasley says, well, on your own head be it unknowingly heralding Sirius's fate. Lucius Malfoy will recognize Sirius's animagus form at the station. Sirius's decision to go is reckless, but it's hard to focus on that when he's so joyful. He's running around, chasing his tail. (laughs) 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 Snapping at pigeons. The sight makes Harry laugh. And at the station, Moody warns them all to be careful what they put in writing. Quote, if in doubt, don't put it in a letter at all. The prospect of their correspondence being monitored is ominous indeed, but this will prove to be an extremely astute instinct. Umbridge will monitor the fires, the outpost. Mm -hmm. When it's time for goodbye, Sirius stands on his hind legs and places his front paws on Harry's shoulders, an embrace of sorts. And though Molly scolds him for not acting more like a dog, it's a deeply touching moment, a physical manifestation of the longing that Sirius and Harry have for a life together and the hindrances that are forever in their way. The train ride begins with an awkward moment when Harry asks Ron and Hermione to find a compartment. Oh, sorry, guess what? We're prefects. That means we have to sit in our own prefect compartment. You have to sit back there with, as Fudge would say, the bilge. (laughs) Harry so often feels apart from others, but in those moments, having Ron and Hermione in his corner keeps him grounded, gives him a sense of belonging. 
Watching them walk away from here presages even more isolation prior, even more loss. Ron and Hermione will, to their undying credit, never leave Harry when it counts. They sacrifice their schooling and their families to hunt horcruxes with them. But as Harry marches toward his decisive meeting with Voldemort, he'll increasingly experience moments where even Ron and Hermione feel separated from him by a veil of responsibility. There's a weight that only Harry can carry. Think of the moment in Hallows when Harry wakes in Grimmauld Place and observes that Ron and Hermione appear to have fallen asleep holding hands. From the book, the idea made him feel strangely lonely. Then as now, they're literally right by Harry's side. But even with those closest to him, there's something separating them. From the book, as Hermione and Ron drag their trunks, crookshanks, and a caged pigwidgeon off toward the engine end of the train, Harry felt an odd sense of loss. He had never traveled on the Hogwarts Express without Ron. In our Goblet movie conversation, I noted the heavy-handed nature of the everything's going to change now, isn't it, line. Here we see the art of the show-don't-tell technique. This is subtle, understated stuff, but it's another harbinger. Thank the old gods and the new for Ginny. Oh! (laughs) Who, rid of her former shyness, boldly instructs Harry to follow her to a compartment. Follow me, big boy. Harry and Ginny one way. Ron and Hermione another, a chapter that solidified a billion ships. Many ships. As they walk, Harry notices people staring at him, talking about him as he passes, and he wonders if they've all been reading The Daily Prophet, another harbinger, this time of the reception awaiting Harry at school. In the short term, at least, he finds himself among more receptive parties, meeting Neville in the corridor, and after a mumbled hesitation from Neville and an encouraging nudge from Ginny, Luna Lovegood, their new compartment mate, and a new force in our story. Love Luna. So glad Luna's here. Luna, with her waist-length hair and bulging eyes, makes quite a first impression. She's got her wand behind her ear, butterbeer caps around her neck. What a look for (laughs) the gal. And an upside-down copy of the quibbler in her hands. She really knows her own style. I respect it. She really does. She stares at Harry, who observes that she doesn't seem to Blink as much as a normal person would. Not a blinker. Quote, you're Harry Potter, she says. And he's like, yeah, I know. When Neville chuckles, she asks who he is. Neville says, I'm nobody. No, you're not, says Ginny sharply. Few things are clear to us right away. One, Luna isn't a typical student or even a typical human being. Mm -hmm. Neville is still searching for his confidence. And Ginny has clearly found hers. Ginny introduces the parties to each other, and when she notes that Luna is in her year, but in Ravenclaw, Luna goes right into hype mode. Whip beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, she said in, quote, a sing-song voice, before diving back into her upside-down magazine. This initial encounter augurs much, much about the Luna experience. Dottie, sure, but so compelling. She is completely unafraid to do what feels right to her, unapologetically and inspiringly herself. Neville excitedly reveals his birthday gift from Uncle Algie. A Mimbulus Mimbletonia. A small gray cactus in a pot that's, quote, covered with what looked like boils rather than spines and was pulsating slightly, a.k.a. the latest in our ever-expanding list of phallic objects from the world of herbology. (laughs) Boy, does it act like a phallic object, I'll tell you. Unfortunately, the Mimbulus Mimbletonia, like Ron, ejaculates loudly. quietly does it loud is it do it loudly <laughs> i think if it goes all over the compartment we've got to say well it that's copiously <laughs> when nibble attempts to illustrate the plant's defensive mechanisms prodding it with a quill 
It squirts foul-smelling dark green liquid from every boil covering the compartment and its inhabitants. Yeah, sounds like high school. From the book, it smelled like rancid manure. <laughs> Just as Harry's spitting the stink sap out of his mouth, spitter, clearly, <laughs> the door opens oh and Cho Chang enters. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, hello, Harry. Bad time? She says an awkward hello, then quickly leaves Harry slumped back in his seat and groaned. He would have liked Cho to discover him sitting with a group of very cool people laughing their heads off at a joke he had just told. He would have not chosen to be sitting with Neville and Looney Lovegood clutching a toad and dripping in stink sap. Sadly for Harry, this encounter augurs the general vibe of his, I guess we would call it a relationship with Cho. Yeah, ish. Which is basically the teenage romance version of a mouthful of stink sap. Cho... If this was 2018, Cho would, like, write a blog post. My terrible date with the chosen one. Well. Well. I said I'd go. He insulted my dead boyfriend. (laughs) Who, by the way, there are rumors that he killed him. Out there, I'm just saying, read the Daily Prophet. Some people are saying. I know. When Ron and Hermione finally arrive, they come bearing, not a harbinger, but unambiguously bad news. There are two fifth-year prefects from each house, and Malfoy is one of Slytherins. That's tough. They run through the rest. Pansy's paired up with Malfoy. Ernie and Hannah representing the Puffs, and Anthony Goldstein and Padma Patil for Ravenclaw. Without missing a beat, Luna jumps right in. You went to the Yule Ball with Padma Patil, said a vague voice. Luna continues, noting, she didn't enjoy it very much. She is, there's no other word for it, an icon. And when she laughs so hard at Ron's Goyle impression that her magazine falls out of her hands, Harry spots the cover art. Corn fudge. One hand holding a money bag. One throttling a goblin. Amid the cover lines? Serious Black. Villain or victim. Dun, dun, dun. Harry asks for a look, realizing this must be the magazine that Kingsley gave Arthur to give to Sirius. The article illustration shows Sirius atop a pile of human bones. Subtle. Work by the quibbler here. Along with the headline, Serious, Black as He's Painted, Notorious Mass Murderer, or Innocent Singing Sensation. Ooh. Indeed. The article, like all the articles in this edition of the quibbler, punctuates quixotic paragraphs with one-line hammers. But But does he? he? (laughs) 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 And pauses that Serious is actually Stubby Boardman, lead singer of the Hobgoblins. Incredible <laughs> theory that I really like, guys. I'm into it. I'm into I'm it. very into it. Sirius does seem like he would really enjoy a candle at dinner. Is it Stubby Boardman? He's got the long hair of he a does. rocker. That much is certain. The Fudge article labels him Goblin Crusher and presents the theory that he's had goblins cooked in pies. Very Arya Stark-esque of him. When Ron asks if there's anything good in the magazine, Hermione says... Of course not. The quibbler's rubbish. Everyone knows that. Tough look here for our girl, given the reply from Luna. Excuse me. My father's the editor. This plays like a fleetingly tense moment, but it's also a herald. The quibbler will play a key role in Harry's spreading his message, with Hermione facilitating a story in the publication by none other than Jason's favorite journalist, Rita Skeeter, warrior for truth. And Luna's father (laughs) will play a pivotal role later in the story as well, sharing the tale of the three brothers with Harry, Ron, and Hermione before, you know, trying to turn them over to the Death Eaters. Who among us? It happens. It happens. Too bad they're not in the quiet car for more peaceful reading. Instead, Malfoy, newly empowered, and his goons swing by talking 
wild shit. You see, I, unlike you, have been made a prefect, which means that I, unlike you, have the power to hand out punishments. Harry fires back. Yeah, but you, unlike me, are a git, so get out and leave us alone. Before Malfoy leaves, though, he drops a concerningly coded parting shot. Well, just watch yourself, Potter, because I'll be dogging your footsteps. Harry and Hermione are unnerved by the word choice. A harbinger of how Voldemort's camp will try to use Sirius to goad and manipulate Harry, as if that wasn't concerning enough. When Harry exits the train, Hagrid's familiar first-year summons is absent. Instead, it's Grubbly Plank, who, Luna notes, can actually teach. (laughs) (laughs) Wild, disrespectful, but not wrong. Harry's quite worried, not only because he really wanted to see Hagrid, but because he knows Hagrid was off on an important Dumbledore-ordered business trip. Could something have happened? Hagrid brought Harry back into the wizarding world, and he's been a constant in Harry's life ever since. His absence is concerning. As is the presence of something else. Creatures pulling the usually horseless school carriages. Mm-hmm. Reptilian, fleshless, winged, horse-like beings. Harry thinks they look eerie and sinister. And he asks Ron what he thinks they are, but Ron can't see them. Harry is feeling utterly bewildered when Luna pipes up. You're not going mad or anything. I can see them too. She says that she's been able to see them since her first day at Hogwarts. Quote, they've always pulled the carriages. Don't worry. You're just as sane as I am. Harry is, on the one hand, relieved that someone else knows what he's talking about. But on the other, given the source here and his initial impressions of Luna after one train ride, not totally reassured. When a person you think might be insane Mm -hmm. says you're just as sane as they are, it doesn't really bring you a sense of peace. That dissonance is effective enough in the moment, but this scene is also such a key harbinger. We will learn in the coming chapters that Harry and Luna can see Thestrals, more on them in today's restricted section, because they've seen and processed death. The winged creatures aren't sinister, as Harry initially thinks, Mm -hmm. and they will play a key role in our hero's book five journey. They are also part of the beautiful bond that Harry and Luna build in this book, a bond informed by grief and mourning, but also open hearts and open minds. Chapter 11. Oh, the Sorting Hat's new song. As Harry checks in for signs of activity in Hagrid's cabin and wonders why, if Luna's being honest, he can now suddenly see the carriage pulling beasts, they make their way to the castle. Again, people stare at Harry and whisper as he passes. Hagrid's not at the staff table, but Harry is shocked to see Umbridge, Fudge's minion from the hearing, looking as toad-like as ever, sitting up there <laughs> next to Dumbledore. But before Umbridge gets her chance to croak, the sorting hat will have it say. The hat, as Harry learned in his fourth year and second sorting ceremony, changes it up every school year. And this year's song is quite a harbinger indeed. The hat opens with a tale of old, which we are by now quite familiar with. The four founders, bound together by friendship and a mission to pass on their magical knowledge to a new generation. Quote, so how could it have gone so wrong? How could such friendships fail? Why? I was there and so can tell the whole sad story tale. The hat runs through the traits. Each founder prized, but it doesn't feel like the boastful rundown of each house's attributes that typically populates these songs. The hat is setting the stage for the rift that eventually tore the founders apart. Quote, So Hogwarts worked in harmony for several happy years, but then discord crept among us, feeding on our faults and fears. The founders turned on each other, with Slytherin leaving the monster within the Chamber of Secrets, as we all know, lying in wait. The hat continues with just a real banger here. 
You heard our dramatic rendition at the top. And never since the Founders Four were whittled down to three have the houses been united as they once were meant to be. And now the sorting hat is here, and you all know the score. I sort you into houses, because that is what I'm for. But this year I'll go further, listen closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. Though I must fulfill my duty and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. Oh, know the perils, read the signs. The warning history shows, for our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes. And we must unite inside her or we'll crumble from within. I have told you. I have warned you. Let the The sorting sorting now begin. This is, again, just another instance of what we like to talk about of J.K. flexing fully by making the riddles and the songs and the stories within the story absolutely iconic. It really gave me chills that moment. It is a chilling and haunting display, and one that unsurprisingly makes quite the impression on the assembled in the Great Hall. Hermione wonders aloud if the hat has ever issued a warning before, and nearly headless Nick confirms, yes, in fact, it has, and that it feels honor-bound to do so. For more on the Sorting Hats history, check out the restricted section in our second Sorcerer's Stone episode. But such warnings only occur, Nick says, when the hat senses great danger. And that selectivity signals the severity of the present moment. The Sorting Hat has stood sentry over Hogwarts for eons, bearing witness to trials and literal wars, observing from its perch in the headmaster's office. It saw the founders split. It saw Voldemort rise. It knows that history is about to repeat itself and that the only chance of emerging victorious is to cast aside the differences that each house props up as a wall and instead turn those into doors. The beginning of the school year is supposed to be a time of celebration Mm -hmm. and orientation. The Hats Declaration augurs that there is no time to waste. There is an urgency here that calls into question not only the sorting system on which Hogwarts is built, but the ministry and the daily prophet and every other being who refuses to admit what the wizarding world is facing and what will be required to survive it. But if Gryffindors and Slytherins can't put their comparatively trivial differences aside, what hope do those who are divided by principle and politics stand of reconciling? The house system may seem insignificant, but it speaks to the way that these divides fester and expand, Mm -hmm. turning from school year breaches into life-altering divides. Remember what Dumbledore said to the students at the end of Goblet of Fire. Quote, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. The Sorting Hat is asking only for that. Open hearts. Friendship. Trust. After the sorting, Dumbledore stands to greet the school, and Harry feels soothed for the moment from the book. Between the absence of Hagrid and the presence of those dragonish horses he had felt his return to Hogwarts so long anticipated was full of unexpected surprises, like jarring notes in a familiar song. But this, at least, was how it was supposed to be. After the meal, Dumbledore dispenses with the start of term notices and introduces Grubbs and Umbridge, who, in case anyone hadn't figured it out by then, He identifies as the new defense against the dark arts teacher. He moves to continue, but Umbridge interrupts him with a foul, (laughs) (laughs) announcing her intention to make a speech. Dumbledore sits, but from the book, 
Professor Sprout's eyebrows had disappeared into her flyaway hair, and <laughs> Professor McGonagall's mouth was as thin as Harry had ever seen it. No new teacher had ever interrupted Dumbledore before. Many of the students were smirking. This woman obviously did not know how things were done at Hogwarts. Ah, this was a shocking moment. Ah, if only that were so. The truth, as we'll soon learn, is much more sinister. She knows exactly how things are done. That's why she's here. Right. To make them not be like that anymore. Right. Her ensuing speech is a harbinger of the change she intends to bring. She speaks to the students as though they're children, speaking of the sacred gifts they must nurture and the need for progress to fend off stagnation. Yet, quote, progress for progress's sake must be discouraged for our tried and tested traditions often require no tinkering. The balance then between old and new, between permanence and change, between tradition and innovation. When she concludes, Dumbledore thanks her for the illuminating message, and Hermione parrots the word. Umbridge's speech may have bored the bulk of the student body into a stupor, but Hermione read what was going on between the lines right away. The ministry intends to take control of Hogwarts. Umbridge's speech is a promise and one that she'll live up to one educational decree at a time as she looks to rob students and teachers of their free will and suppress Dumbledore's influence, turning a castle meant for growth and learning into one of oppression, fear, and abuse. She is the worst. She really is the worst. Oh, Truly the worst. Horrible. Harry's eager to escape the Great Hall, where the newly sorted first years look at him with horror in their eyes. What a change from the odd expressions that used to greet him. Quote, he had been stupid not to expect this, he thought angrily. He came back from the graveyard clutching Cedric's dead body, claiming that he had just watched Lord Voldemort return. And then he... Disappeared for the summer. Silence always breeds whispers. Always. Always. Harry just wants to reach his dormitory and find some peace and quiet. His first day back hasn't been anything like what he expected or craved. Seamus and Dean, they got to the dormitory first. And when Harry enters, they stop talking abruptly. Quote, Harry wondered whether they had been talking about him, then whether he was being paranoid. Harry doesn't even trust his own instincts anymore. Dean and Harry exchange some pleasantries, and then Seamus prompted by Dean, reveals that his mother didn't want him to return to school. Harry asks why. Well, I suppose because of y'all. <laughs> Harry's heart begins to race. Um, she believes the Daily Prophet, said Harry. She thinks I'm a liar and Dumbledore's an old fool. Seamus looks up at him again. Um, so like that. <laughs> Harry can't take it. Quote, he was sick of it, sick of being the person who was stared at and talked about all the time. Seamus asks Harry, well, tell us what actually happened. But Harry's in no mood to oblige. And instantly they're arguing about having a go at Seamus's mother. Damn. About having a go at anyone who calls Harry a liar. Harry pulls his wand. Very quick to pull his wand he these is. days. He's quick to pull his wand. Ron enters. He rises to the occasion, defending Harry, pulling a power move, threatening Seamus with detention. And then Neville adds his voice to the chorus. Gran we learn, quote, says it's the Daily Prophet that's going downhill, not Dumbledore. She's canceled our subscription. We believe Harry. Yes, Neville! He may immediately pull the blanket up to his chin like he's hiding his fear and terror at having spoken up, but this is a huge moment for him. He's voicing his truth. He's finding his courage. Quote, Harry felt a rush of gratitude toward Neville. He also feels totally unmoored by the argument yep. with Seamus, whom... He's always liked. He's always gotten along with. If his friend, his classmate, and his dorm mate thinks this of him, what is everyone else who doesn't even really know him going to say? 
This encounter with Seamus pretends an even worse return to Hogwarts than Harry had come to anticipate. The only positive about the showdown is that it forces Harry to think sympathetically for once of Dumbledore's summer actions. Had Dumbledore also felt like this since siding mm. with Harry? Quote, they'll know we're right in the end, thought Harry miserably as Ron got into bed and extinguished the last candle in the dormitory. But he wondered how many attacks like Seamus's he would have to endure before that time came. Chapter 12, Professor Umbridge, boo. Upon hearing about Seamus the next morning, Hermione reveals that Lavender Brown, good old Lavender, also thinks Harry is lying when Harry snaps Hermione's stands up to him. I told her to keep her big fat mouth shut about you, actually, and it would be quite nice if you stopped jumping down Ron and my throats, Harry, because if you haven't noticed, we're on your side. Good for you, Hermione. Yes. Harry is rightfully abashed, and in the embarrassed pause, Hermione reminds them both of Dumbledore's end of term warning, which, as we just noted, and as she notes here, parallels the sorting hats. Hermione, so much more mature than so many of her peers, thirsts for interhouse unity, but she's a rarity in many, many respects, this among them. When she receives her copy of the Daily Prophet at breakfast that morning, Harry asks why she's bothering with that load of rubbish. This is an iconic line from Hermione. <laughs> yes. It's best to know what the enemy are saying. Oh, damn. <laughs> like, but She's ready. She is ready. <laughs> it's not about pleasant tidings or a warm welcome. It's about facing the truth and knowing what lies ahead. One thing that lies ahead? Classes. And a yes. fuck ton of them. When McGonagall hands out the schedules, Ron groans. And Fred and George remark upon the nose-to-the-grindstone nature of the fifth year, the owl year, when half the members of their class the twins say, had minor breakdowns. Quote, it's a nightmare of a year, the fifth. If you care about exam results anyway, Fred and I managed to keep our spirits up somehow. <laughs> Just an amazing showing from Fred and George so far in this book. When Ron mocks their three owl apiece yield, Fred says, quote, we feel our futures lie outside the world of academic yes, achievement. I feel that that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> And George reveals that they nearly decided not to return to Hogwarts. They didn't want to break their mother's heart after Percy's falling out. So they determined to use their seventh year at Hogwarts for some boots on the ground market research for the joke shop. Quote, we're not going to waste our last year here, Fred says. And the twins' words about their intentions and the owl grind alike signal some of the story's signature moments to come. Between lessons, Cho again approaches Harry. Though their conversation includes an inelegant question on Harry's part about Joe's summer. <laughs> Quite inelegant. <laughs> so how was your uh, summer of mourning? <laughs> Which was as impacted by Cedric's death as Harry's. And though Ron scares her off with a truly insulting, you're a bandwagon fan accusation, Harry can't help but notice that this is the second time in as many days that she's sought him out for a hello. So like light misogyny from Ron Weasley? Yes. Stunning. <laughs> One of the truly brilliant bits of gymnastics of play from Goblin on is the interspersing the teenage angst and romance with grave concerns of looming war and having it all exist in perfect harmony. Here, in Cho's exchange with Harry, we get a portent of the relationship, again, in quotes, to come. But we also get a sign of another relationship that will develop, Ron and Hermione's. As Hermione can't help but call out Ron's tactless behavior responding on some level to his inability to recognize that a flirtation and budding courtship is playing out before his eyes. We're also seeing in kind of slow motion the unveiling of a still third relationship, that between Harry and Voldemort. Ron's emotional immaturity will earn him Ginny's wrath and Hermione's misery in Prince, but it's here in order that we see Hermione begin to respond to it with 
heated comments. Snape, at least, is unchanging, albeit unchangingly awful. Quote, Moronic though some of this class undoubtedly are, I expect you to scrape an acceptable in your owl or suffer my displeasure. He says that he takes only the top students into his newt class, and getting there is going to be a grueling business, particularly for Harry, whom Snape has always loathed and who instantly leaves Mm -hmm. zero doubt that Voldemort's return and Snape and Harry's central positions in the Order of the Phoenix's efforts to thwart that return will in no way change the way Snape treats Harry in class, or at all. When Snape sets his students the immensely difficult draft of peace on their first day of lessons, Harry forgets one ingredient. Snape's assessment? First, quote, tell me, Potter, can you read? Tough one. And then Evanesco vanishing the entire cauldron's worth of potion and leaving Harry without anything to submit for a grade. Quote, his potion had been no worse than Ron's, which was now giving off a foul odor of bad eggs, or Neville's, which had achieved the consistency of just mixed cement and which Neville was now having to gouge out of his cauldron. At launch, Hermione voices her surprise that Snape isn't being a bit gentler to Harry now that they're on the same side. This sparks another tiff between Ron and Hermione, which leads Harry to burst out. Oh, shut up, the pair of you, and walk off, lamenting their endless bickering. But it's really Snape and Harry who are costing something by always having a go at each other. And this first lesson back presages the doomed occlumency lessons that Snape and Harry will share this year. Failed lessons that leave Harry's mind open to Voldemort's corruption. Failed lessons that leave Harry dreaming of the corridor and, eventually, serious. Snape has so much to teach Harry, as Harry's fondness for his one true love, Expelliarmus, and magnetic draw to the Half-Blood Prince's potion book show, among many other examples. But they can't ever put their dislike for each other aside long enough to even give mutual respect a chance to grow. Trelawney's lessons are intended to be harbingers. That's her whole thing. It's time to consult the Dream Oracle because... As Trey says, dream interpretation is crucial to divining the future. When Harry and Ron pair up to share, though, Harry clams up from the book. He's not going to share his dreams with anyone. He's self-conscious of his dreams about Cedric and Voldemort in the graveyard, especially after Dudley called him out for screaming in his sleep. It's hard to blame Harry. What should be a private grief has already become an object of ridicule, in part because Harry felt... In an instant, unthinking obligation to reveal that Voldemort had returned, and in part because the Ministry and the Prophet have turned his trauma into punchlines and propaganda. For clicks! If Harry's last few weeks have been full of support and understanding, instead of ridicule, anger, and shame, maybe he would have felt more comfortable here sharing his other dream, the one about the dark corridor ending in a door, and perhaps from there, clarity and help could have emerged instead of confusion. What could have been? There's also plenty of confusion about Umbridge. Harry's had one deeply ominous experience with her at his hearing, and her welcome feast speech rankled as much as it bored, but she's still largely a question mark. Right away, though, matters start to crystallize. She tut-tuts them for not greeting her enthusiastically enough, then instructs them to put their wands away. A clear harbinger of a mind-numbingly dull lesson to come. When she taps the blackboard with her unusually short wand, the theme reveals itself. A return to basic principles. Well, that doesn't bode well, especially when coupled with Umbridge's opening night remarks about progress for progress's sake. This isn't a person who wants to move forward. She's an originalist, adhering to the letter of the ministry law. 
with no time or patience for Dumbledore's progressive oversight. Umbridge's first lesson is literally just asking them to read from their books, which sounds more like homework than a lesson. And Hermione seems to agree. Harry, in a stupor from attempting, heavy air quotes around attempting, his reading, gets a shock when he turns and sees Hermione, book closed, hand in the air. Quote, Harry cannot remember Hermione ever neglecting to read when instructed to. Shocking stuff. Umbridge deliberately ignores Hermione, but the strategy doesn't last long. More and more members of the class are noticing that Hermione's hand is still in the air, and they start to read her intentions instead of the book. When Umbridge finally calls on Hermione, our girl is ready with the heater. I've got a query about your course aims. Why isn't there anything up there about using defensive spells, she wonders. Umbridge pushes back with force. You surely aren't expecting to be attacked during class. This sets the stage for one of the best attributions in the history, not only of Harry Potter, but dare we say all of literature. Quote, we're not going to use magic. Ron ejaculated loudly. <laughs> Bad news, Juan Juan. There will be no release, loud or otherwise, in this class. Clearly, Umbridge isn't interested in preparing them for the real world. She's teaching to the test. Concerning in general, surely, but downright terrifying given the current circumstances. Voldemort is back. He's raising an army. And the teacher of the subject specifically designed to teach young witches and wizards how to defend themselves from the dark arts, like it's right there in the name, is fundamentally opposed to pursuing that in any meaningful way. And of course, everyone's on Hermione's side when Umbridge notes that they'll be learning spells in a, quote, secure, risk-free way, as we all, yes, learn to defend yourself against evil in the safest conditions possible. Harry snaps. What use is that? If we're going to be attacked, it won't be in a, and Umbridge cuts him off. And though other students like Dean and Parvati interject to defend Lupin and even Barty and note the absurdity of never practicing spells they'll need to perform in a practical portion of their defense owl, the Harry Umbridge showdown has begun from the book. So we're not supposed to be prepared for what's waiting out there. There's nothing waiting out there, Mr. Potter. Oh, yeah, said Harry, his temper, which seemed to have been bubbling just beneath the surface all day, was reaching a boiling point. Who do you imagine wants to attack children like yourselves, inquired Professor Umbridge in a horribly honeyed voice. Mm, let's think, said Harry in a mock thoughtful voice. Maybe Lord Voldemort, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Numerous of Harry's peers shriek or gasp, but Umbridge stays cool. She takes 10 points, which, considering, <laughs> not bad. 10? I mean, we've, listen, <laughs> we have talked many times about the demerit system scoring at Hogwarts. 10 is not the worst I've seen for screaming. Certainly not from someone who literally will just be like, let me rip open your hand slash perform the Cruciatus Curse yes. on you. <laughs> she then launches into a monologue. You have been informed that a certain duck wizard is at large once again. This is a lie. <laughs> this comment is a devastating herald, a declaration of intent on Umbridge's part. She intends not only to deny the truth, as her mentor Fudge has, but to debilitate the forces who are seeking to speak that truth. Hogwarts has never been perfect, of course. Reminder. Uh -huh. Voldy taught defense against the dark arts in <laughs> Harry's first year, but at least he let him do stuff. His second professor was a con man, a fraud, and his fourth was literally a Death Eater, albeit one who, as Dean notes to Umbridge, did teach them quite a bit. His second year leisure activities involved hanging out with his good friend Tom, a.k.a. Voldemort, but Hogwarts is still a home. It's still a place where Harry has always felt safest, if not 
actually being safe. Right. And most encouraged, where he's learned the skills needed not only to advance in his education and toward his career, but literally to defend himself, to stay alive. And Umbridge is actively seeking to corrupt that, to neuter that process. Harry won't stand for it. It is not a lie. I saw him. I fought him. She gives Harry detention and instructs the students to return to their reading and report anyone claiming that Voldemort has returned. Harry stands in fury. So according to you, Cedric Diggory dropped dead of his own accord, did he? No one in the room but Ron and Hermione has heard Harry speak about Cedric. They're wrapped as Unbridge calls Cedric's death a tragic accident. Sure. And Harry, shaking but propelled by his anger and his determination and his courage, gives it the only label that truly fits. It was murder. Voldemort killed him and you know it. I love that. And you know it. Proud of Harry in that moment. Yes. She sends him to Professor McGonagall. And he meets Peeves on the way. Ooh, crackpot's feeling cranky, <laughs> Peeves says. As Harry flees, Peeves' words chase him. Almost think he's barking. The potty we lad. <laughs> but some are more kindly and think he's just sad. But Peeves knows better and says that he's mad. McGonagall, drawn by Harry's bellowing, shut up, reads Umbridge's note, her eyes narrowing with each line. McGonagall asks Harry if the charges are true. Did he shout at Umbridge? Did he call her a liar? Did he insist that you know who was back? Yes, yes, yes. McGonagall's response is iconic. Have a biscuit, Potter. (laughs) Man, I gotta say, I really wish that more people would just offer me cookies when I was in a foul mood. Harry is stunned and reflects internally that there had been a previous occasion when, expecting to suffer McGonagall's wrath, he had, quote, instead been appointed by her to the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Does McGallion have her eye on the action again here? No. She has her eye on an enemy, and she wants Harry to understand unambiguously what Umbridge's presence means. Quote, Potter, you need to be careful. Harry observes that her voice sounds, quote, low and anxious and somehow much more human than usual. She's from the ministry, McGonagall warns. She's reporting to Fudge. She's a spy, a plant, a mole. And she's here not only to put the ministry's fingerprints back on Hogwarts, but to disrupt the narrative that Harry and Dumbledore are spreading. Harry can't believe the injustice. Detention every night just for speaking the truth? McGonagall pushes, trying to force him to see the light. Quote, do you really think this is about truth or lies? It's about keeping your head down and your temper under control. Mm -hmm. Now, Harry, to his undying credit, has always thought it was about truth or lies. He's noble. He's well-intentioned. He wants to fight for what he thinks is right. McGonagall, also to her undying credit, knows that sometimes that isn't enough. Fight for the truth, yes, but do it with care. Do it with caution. Do it with full knowledge of your foes and how they intend to try to beat you. And then do whatever you can to avoid handing them the weapons they need. This is indispensable advice. And yet, it's also another harbinger of the battle with Umbridge that will cloud Harry's Mm -hmm. fifth year, of the ongoing war with the ministry that will cast a pal over Harry's efforts even after Fudge is dethroned, of the ways that Harry will increasingly need to consider more than just black and white when battling his enemies, learning to spot the subtleties, learning to understand the nuance, learning to accept that even if he never wants to, other people live in the gray. At least there are snacks. Have another biscuit, she said irritably, thrusting the tin at him. No thanks, said Harry coldly. Don't be ridiculous, she snapped. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Yahoo Sports. Are you ready for live football on your phones? With the Yahoo Sports mobile app, you get live, local, and primetime NFL games all season long. Never. 
miss your local game. What? Never miss a big national what? matchup. All you need is the Yahoo Sports app. Oh my app. God, seriously, go get the app. It's your ticket to watching live NFL games wherever you want. It's all football and all yours. Oh, watch live NFL games on the Yahoo Sports mobile app. And now, back to binge mode. Chapter 13, Detention with Dolores. By dinner in the Great Hall, everyone has heard about Harry's outburst, and people are a buzz. They're not even bothering to hide it. They want Harry to know that they're gawking at him, that they're hoping to provoke him into shouting and speaking for them to hear about Cedric, about Voldemort. Again, as we keep noting, Harry's a creature in a zoo stuck behind the glass, and the masses are gathering around to poke and stare. And also, by this time, Harry has a slight reputation as being a hothead. Harry doesn't get how all these people are now doubting his story after accepting what Dumbledore told them at the end of the prior school year. Hermione, always astute, has the answer. They didn't. Dumbledore made a speech and then everybody went home for the summer. And then, of course, the Daily Prophet's propaganda machine kicked in. And that was basically what people were reading and taking in during that time. Harry's been angry at Dumbledore all summer for failing to keep him informed. Now another anti-Albus voice joins the chorus, Hermione's. How can Dumbledore have let this happen, she says. They've had bad defense teachers, yes, but to employ someone who actively wants to prevent them from doing magic. She continues, what's Dumbledore playing at? Mm-hmm. Dumbledore has made his share of mistakes, all of which we've outlined, hopefully lovingly, on this pod. But he's always been a hero to his students, admired, revered, largely beyond reproach. Now, his best and brightest are beginning to question him. That presages a new kind of vulnerability for Dumbledore, but it also pretends newfound independence for Hermione, Harry, and company. If they can't trust the adults, they'll have to trust themselves. Yes. But to trust themselves, they'll need to be alive. Yes. And that's no sure thing with Fred and George experimenting on their fellow students. When Hermione spots twins in a huddle of first years who seem to be chewing something, she acts. They've gone too far. The first years collapse in unison. <laughs> Looks like the fainting fancies are really coming along. Hermione enters into a shouting match with the twins who insist that there's nothing nefarious about this. They're paying the volunteers and they've already tested the sweets on themselves. Hermione insists it could be dangerous and she's not messing around. What is she going to do, Fred and George mock? Make them write lines? Quote, no, she said, her voice quivering with anger. Mm -hmm. But I will write to your mother. That's (laughs) savage. Savage move that the twins identify as being below the belt. But also... A reminder for us, not that we needed another one, but still our latest reminder that in a world in which even the minister can't find his courage, Hermione will take no prisoners. She is always ready to stand her ground. In care of magical creatures, Harry, already glum about Hagrid's absence, receives a jolt of foreboding when Malfoy, again, begins dropping these clues this time about Hagrid. Maybe the stupid great oafs got himself badly injured. And then... Maybe he's been messing with stuff that's too big for him. If you get my drift. (laughs) Just as Harry wondered if Malfoy knew about Sirius accompanying him to the train, now he has to wonder if Draco knows something about Hagrid's mission. And remember, Harry hates nothing more than Draco knowing shit that he does not know. Mm -hmm. Draco hints about his father's connection to the minister and the ministry's intention to eliminate substandard teaching at Hogwarts. Don't go down any easier. Do more horrors in the umbrage mold await? We'll soon see that these taunts from Malfoy signal a sea change. Educational decrees, the sacking of Trelawney and Hagrid, the removal of Dumbledore, a further corrosion 
of the Hogwarts traditions. The reality will uproot their lives. The possibility alone is horrifying to contemplate, but Hermione, like McGonagall, is preaching caution. Harry, don't go picking a row with Malfoy. Don't forget, he's a prefect now. He can make life difficult for you. Wow. I wonder what it would be like to have a difficult life, said Harry sarcastically. Harry! Harry's got the zingers in this book. Finally some zingers. I love it. Harry, feeling slightly better after Luna to laughs from the assembled and Ernie to confusion and defiance from the assembled, both proclaim their support for him. But also feeling slightly worse after Professor Sprout became yet the latest to drill home how intense Al Year will be, readies for his first detention with Umbridge. Before he can go, though, Angelina approaches, furious that he's gotten detention for the same time that she'd already told him to keep clear for Gryffindor Keeper tryouts. Harry's stung by the injustice of Angelina's anger, but he has no idea that this interaction presages much quidditch agony ahead. When he arrives at Umbridge's sickly, sweetly decorated office, though I love the cats, he asks her if he can reschedule Friday's detention so that he can attend tryouts. Her reaction, complete with a wide smile, is a harbinger. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is your punishment for spreading evil, nasty, attention-seeking stories. She's enjoying making Harry unhappy and certainly will make the most of the intel gleaned in this moment. The Quidditch is this important to him. I think it's rather a good thing that you are missing something you really want to do. Umbridge will capitalize on her first opportunity to remove Quidditch from Harry's life, and her reaction here speaks to her motives. Mm -hmm. She's not interested in his behavior, not really. She's interested in depriving him of joy, making him comply through sheer force of misery. She tells him he'll be doing lines. No, not with your quill. You're going to be using a rather special one of mine. She hands him a long, thin black quill with a notably sharp point. His instruction? To write, I must not tell lies. How many times? As long as it takes the message to sink in. This is, I think, the most disturbing thing that I've read that's in the Harry Potter series. It's terrible. It's truly awful. I mean, it is, the Dursleys were awful. Neglectful, certainly crossing the line into abuse mm -hmm. at times. This is unambiguously abuse. Yeah, this is torture. Unambiguously awful. When Harry notes that there's no ink, she says, oh, you won't need ink. And there's from the book the merest suggestion of a laugh in her voice. When Harry begins to write, he gasps. He doesn't need ink, he realizes, because the quill is drawing the blood from his body with the message appearing in red on the parchment and the matching words etching themselves into the back of Harry's writing hand. Quote, cut into his skin as though traced there by a scalpel. Harry looks at her. She's smiling. Yes? Nothing, said Harry quietly. There's no overseeing the horror of this moment. Umbridge is abusing Harry. She's torturing Harry. Her idea of punishment is physical pain. She wants to shame and humiliate. It's about power, yes, but it's also about malice, a harbinger of her reign of terror to come, including coercively interrogating students by using Veritaserum and in her final pre-centaur moments, preparing to use an unforgivable curse to torture information out of them. She is evil, and her lack of Death Eater robes doesn't make her any less so. She's hiding in polite society, tormenting and deceiving, but she is evil. From the book, Harry did not ask when he would be allowed to stop. He did not even check his watch. He knew she was watching him for signs of weakness, and he was not going to show any, not even if he had to sit here all night cutting open his own hand with his quill. Harry won't bend. He's faced Voldemort four times, but he's never seen quite an evil like this. 
so awful. The shock of reading that for the first time. It is, is shocking. It's shocking and truly it <sighs> makes you wince, actually. Ugh, I will say one of the coolest and most meta Harry Potter tattoos I've seen is, mm-hmm. and I will not tell lies in kind of like pinkish faded red yeah. ink on the back of a hand. You should get that one. It's, it is actually really cool. <laughs> That's all. It is great. The next morning, Harry and Ron lie to each other. Ron withholds that he, as we will soon learn, has been out practicing Quidditch at night, intending to ready for trials. And Harry says the numbers made him do lines, but doesn't say anymore. When Hermione later says, at least it's only lines, it's not as if it's a dreadful punishment, really, Harry opens his mouth to speak, but then stops himself. Quote, he was not really sure why he was not telling Ron and Hermione exactly what was happening in Umbridge's room. He only knew that he did not want to see their looks of horror. And then he later thinks, he also felt dimly that this was between himself and Umbridge, mm-hmm. a private battle of wills. And he was not going to give her the satisfaction of hearing that he had complained about it. Harry, who has suffered so much abuse and pain in his life, is experiencing another trauma here, a devastating one. And no one but the victim of that trauma can really know how it feels. So we will not in any way begrudge Harry his desire for privacy. We will not judge that choice, which is his to make. But it pains us that Harry so often feels that he has to go it alone. Remember what the Sorting Hat said, stronger together. Harry needs his friends. As he returns from his fourth detention, from which Umbridge dismissed him when his hand began to ooze blood rather than re-healing after each line— he thinks that there might finally be a teacher he hates more than Snape. And yeah. just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say so. Just as he's thinking this and thinking that she's in, quote, evil, twisted, mad, old, he runs into Ron, who's hiding behind a statue, broomstick in hand. It's truth time. Ron's been practicing to try out for Keeper, and at present he's hiding from Fred and George. As they're walking back, Ron spots the wound on Harry's hand, and Ron is horrified. He yeah. says, she's sick. Tells Harry to go to McGonagall, but Harry refuses. Quote, I'm not giving her the satisfaction of knowing she's got to me. Dumbledore then, Ron says. This is a flat and instant no from Harry, who pretends that it's because Dumbledore's busy, but who thinks to himself that he's not going to ask Dumbledore for help when Dumbledore hasn't spoken to him since June. Another harbinger of what Dumbledore's silence costs. On Harry's last evening in detention, he strategically positions his chair to try to get a glimpse of the Quidditch pitch. When Umbridge summons him by saying, let's see if you've gotten the message yet, shall we? And grabs his hand, which, get your hands off me. Knowing what Harry's blood was used for at the end of Goblet, it's like terrifying to think of how she just drains him and then touches him and what she has access to. Get your hands off the chosen one, Dolores. From the book, pain seared not across the back of his hand, but across the scar on his forehead. At the same time, he had a most peculiar sensation somewhere around his midriff. Harry freaks out. Pain in his scar means one thing, Voldemort. How is it possible that Umbridge evoked that response? Though we'll learn in time that Harry was sensing Voldemort's emotions at that moment. It's a frightful harbinger in the moment, raising the possibility in Harry's mind that this vile creature may actually be under Voldemort's control, like Quirrell was. Upon returning to the common room and briefly sharing in Ron's joy over being named Keeper and getting a side chat from Angelina about how Ron kind of sucks, but uh, we did it anyway, and Weasley is our king. He voices this to Hermione, who's busy making more elf hats because they're disappearing like mad. Another harbinger, this time, of Dobby's impending return to our story. And who doesn't think it can work that way anymore now that he has a proper body of his own? She raises another unpalatable possibility. Could Umbridge be under the Imperius curse? Again, as with Fudge, the truth is almost worse. Umbridge is making these choices 
because she wants to. Yep. Hermione notes that Dumbledore has told Harry his scar responds to Voldemort's emotion and encourages Harry to speak to the headmaster. She's sure Dumbledore would want to know. Yeah, said Harry before he could stop himself. That's the only bit of me Dumbledore cares about, isn't it? My scar. Again, J.K. outdoes herself. A line that's seemingly a throwaway product of angst and anger is actually a huge harbinger, teasing Dumbledore's suspicion about Harry's scar and the true nature of the connection between Harry and Voldemort. A suspicion at the heart of Dumbledore's grand plan. Oh, chapter 14, Percy and Padfoot. Harry, the events of his most recent detention fresh in his mind and on his hand, sets out to write to Sirius. Using vague language and finally appreciating how hard it had been for Ron and Hermione to write letters to him over the summer when there were limits on what they could say, Harry mentions that the school has a new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Dolores Umbridge, who's, quote, nearly as nice as your mom. (laughs) Then he gets to the point. Quote, I'm writing because that thing I wrote to you about last summer happened again last night when I was doing a detention with Umbridge. In closing, Harry makes a reference to missing, quote, our biggest friend. And like, come on, Harry, literally anyone could figure out what that means. I I was shocked when later Sirius is like, yeah, you did great with the code. Let me just say both of these two, (laughs) Sirius and Harry, they're like too clever by half. We'll get to this later in the, in when Sirius appears in the fire and he's like, no, don't you understand? Codes can be broken. First of all, you two are idiots. Right. Codes can be broken, but our biggest friend is just foolproof. Not only codes can be broken, but like you're talking on a tapped phone right now. It's like, come on, guys. What is happening? <laughs> Anyway, Harry desperately hopes that Sirius will get the hint about Hagrid. Again, a hint that's just our biggest friend. Wink, 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 wink. There's no way Harry's godfather will misunderstand the thing from last summer, though. When Harry wrote to Sirius then about the pain in his scar, Sirius was concerned, and he surely will be again now. Pain in Harry's scar? The mark that signifies in flesh his relationship with Voldemort is an ominous and obvious harbinger of what's to come. Under pressure from all angles now, Harry is seeing harbingers everywhere, actually. Paranoia is setting in. But is it really paranoia when people really are out to get you, as any number of people are? From Umbridge to the Ministry to Voldemort, people are gunning for Harry. Harry sets off for the Owlery. On the way, Mrs. Norris Filch's beloved cat brushes past his ankles and gazes at him with her hard yellow eyes. I'm not doing anything wrong, he says to her. From the book, she had the unmistakable air of a cat that was off to report to her boss, he thinks to himself. But of course, Harry is not doing anything wrong. It's just that the world is upside down. Doing the right thing is treated as criminality. Speaking the truth merits punishment. And Dolores Umbridge is starting to carve out her run of the castle. Harry gives Hedwig the letter and her instructions. She flies off and Harry watches her go. From the book, he watched her until she became a tiny black speck and vanished. His eye falls on Hagrid's hut, still empty, and the treetops of the forbidden forest swaying in the breeze. From the book again, and then he saw it, a great reptilian winged horse just like the ones pulling the Hogwarts carriages with leathery black wings spread wide like a pterodactyl's, rose up out of the trees like a grotesque giant bird. The whole thing happened so quickly, Harry could hardly believe what he had seen. Harry's still worried that this is a harbinger. Much like when he was seeing Sirius in Prisoner of Azkaban and thought that it was a grim. Absent information about that creature's true identity, he can only worry about what it means when he's suddenly seeing them. And then only Luna, she of the radish earrings, has told him she sees them too. As Harry's recovering, Cho arrives at the Allery. What a surprise. 
Their interactions have been understandably awkward so far, and this one is too, at least at first. Harry, the winged beast jamming his brain, mentions the weather and then feels really embarrassed about being such a dull conversationalist. But there are positive developments from there. They chat briefly about Quidditch. And Harry mentions his recent spell in detention, which kept him from watching Keeper tryouts for, as Cho puts it, the tornado hater. (laughs) Ron. Cho says, that Umbridge woman's foul, putting you in detention just because you told the truth about how, how, how he died. Everyone heard about it. It was all over the school. You were really brave standing up to her like that. Then we get this description of Harry's current state. Harry's insides reinflated so rapidly he felt as though he Love might it. actually float a few inches off the dropping strewn floor. Romantic. <laughs> yeah, quite. His insides inflated. <laughs> Something else did too. Yes. I'm sure. When things are hard. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Sometimes all that's needed is a supportive word (laughs) to help you keep your bearings, to keep you headed in the right direction. But what else does Harry think? Quote, who cared about a stupid flying horse? Cho thought he had been really brave. And now he's hard. (laughs) Here's a harbinger for our boy. Look, a 15-year-old rocking a full. Yes. Putting girls in sports ahead of potentially gravely important matters. He should be thinking about what that stupid flying horse is and why he's seeing it. Filch then arrives to throw cold water on the budding romance. Shouts to Mrs. Norris for fetching Filch here. You got to say, Filch and her have a very, very strong connection. When that pussy talks, he he listens. (laughs) When the pussy calls, Filch come a-running. I wonder how much fanfic there is out there on the internet about Filch and Fig. Two squibs who love cats. No, she deserves better. Come on. Mr. Tibbles and I Mrs. Will just Norris say this. could pair up too. It would really be some fucking Fifty Shades shit because <laughs> Filch is- He's got those manacles. Filch, you know Filch is into some fucking wild dark shit. Gods, I miss the and screaming. Again, not to besmirch anyone there, uh, whatever you know they want to do with another consenting adult, but Filch pushes it. <laughs> You better get that safe word and get that shit hammered out when Filch is involved. He just watches the opening scene of Billions on loop. <laughs> Once he's, he's like, done with his quick, he quick actually spell. He actually doesn't have like a litter box. <laughs> Mrs. Norris just sh- <laughs> fucking shits on his chest. Oh my God. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Just to be clear, that was a Filch quote. Holy shit. (laughs) Anyway. Filch arrives and says that he's been tipped off, that Harry's placing a dung bomb order, and he's like, the dung bombs are always supposed to be for me and Mrs. Norris. What are you doing? This is so strange that Harry doesn't even know how to process it, but like Moody's comment about watching what they put in writing, it's a harbinger. Their communication is being monitored, as we and Harry will learn with even more certainty when Umbridge's hand shoots into the fireplace later on. When Filch demands to see Harry's letter, Cho, unprompted, speaks up on his behalf. Mm. She saw him send it, she says. Now, she didn't. She did not. (laughs) But she's lying to protect Harry, a harbinger that she really does have feelings for him. Yes. Harry walks to the Great Hall, Cho's words ringing in his ears and warming his heart. She called him brave, he thinks. He also recalls that, quote, of course, 
She preferred Cedric. He knew that. But even that can't keep him down. If he'd asked her to the ball first, he reasons, maybe things would have been yes, different. Great. And anyway. Slightly distasteful. Listen, Harry. Hey, man. Said is dead. Said is dead, my guy. Go for it. <laughs> In this one instance, don't remember Cedric Diggory. <laughs> he really is like, well, let's see. She did like Cedric more, but I mean, he's dead. <laughs> one champion down. That's right. Hermione is still keeping tabs on the enemy. Someone's still keeping their fucking eye on the ball around these parts. Over breakfast, she cracks open her daily profit as she has been doing every day and digs into the intel. And uh uh-oh, from the book, the Ministry of Magic has received a tip-off from a reliable source that Sirius Black, notorious mass murderer, blah, 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 is currently hiding in London. Yikes. Looks like that comment from Draco wasn't a stray one after all. From the book again, Lucius Malfoy, I'll bet anything, said Harry in a low, furious voice. He did recognize Sirius on the platform. It's awful for Sirius, cooped up in his ancestral home with bad memories everywhere. The creature always there lurking to remind him of those bad memories. But accompanying Harry to King's Cross was reckless. Yes. Turning into a dog isn't a disguise when people know that's what your disguise is. Yes. My guy. <laughs> and as Sirius himself said, Wormtail surely knows of his dog form and surely told. If Wormtail and Lucius know, guess what? So does everyone. So do all the Death Eaters, presumably. Others who are much more dangerous. They're gaining awareness also. Sirius accompanying Harry to the train station. And the way he treated Harry on that trip, you know, yelping and dancing around and wagging his tail, is every clue that anyone watching would need to know that Sirius and Harry are close. But that's not the only distressing harbinger in the prophet. Trespass at the ministry! Bum, bum, bum! Sturgis Podmore, 38 of number two. Laburnum Gardens, Clapham, has appeared in front of the Wizengamot, charged with trespass and attempted robbery at the Ministry of Magic on 31st August. He was found, we learn, trying to force his way through a top security door. What's this? Podmore is a member of the Order. In fact, he was supposed to be part of Harry's security detail on the trip from Grimald Place to King's Cross, but he didn't show. Troubling. Now he's breaking into the ministry? What's going on here? All signs are pointing toward the ministry as the center of the action. Something's going on there. We will discover later that Podmore, under an invisibility cloak, was guarding the Department of Mysteries from the Death Eaters the day of Harry's trial, and that Lucius Malfoy put him under the Imperious Curse. The Death Eaters then had him try to break into the Department of Mysteries to steal the prophecy, but Podmore was caught. Absent that knowledge, though, this is highly alarming for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Yep. Harry astutely pieces together that Sturgis could not have been on a job for the Order because Moody seems surprised and pissed that he wasn't back to help see the gang off to King's Cross and also that he had never returned his invisibility cloak. Things are so grave in this moment that Hermione's actually kind of into Ron's theory yeah. of a frame-up. A sign of the times, if ever there was one. <laughs> Quidditch practice brings its share of harbingers as well. We get this iconic, still, this is important too, from Harry. Oh, Harry. Plus a heavy Weasley is our king harbinger as the Slytherins watch Ron's first practice and absolutely get a lot of amusement out of it. Plus, Fred and George legit almost committing a manslaughter. <laughs> Wild stuff here. I mean, wild stuff. She almost bleeds out on the Quidditch pitch. Katie. Correct. Bleeding profusely from the nose. <laughs> yeah. And almost bleeding out. And Fred and George 
uh, she uh, might have swallowed a blood <laughs> blister pod by mistake. Dudes. You need better labels. Quit better killing. <laughs> All this bodes ill for their Quidditch futures and for Katie's future safety and many others alike. What's more, when Ron and Harry return and Ron labels the practice, quote, completely lousy, Hermione, angry at him for prioritizing sports over homework, melts and instinctually seeks to comfort him. Ron, however, gets pissed that she assumes he's the reason that practice was lousy. But it was. And it was. Largely. Not all, there was also the near, the near death. death. The near death was also a bummer. The thing is, though, if one of your friends almost dies, it's a lot easier to stomach if your keeper can catch the quaff. I gotta say, she was bleeding out, but she was playing, and she was doing her job. <laughs> We get numerous descriptions of the color of Ron's face matching the quaffle, looking like a beacon and the same color as Katie's profusive blood spillage. Katie's, Katie out here with like the flu game against Utah. <laughs> anyway, it's a classic harbinger of both her love for him and his immaturity delaying their union both physical and emotional, for far too long. After practice, another harbinger in the form of Hermes, Percy Weasley's owl carrying a letter for Ron. What? The contents are troubling. Besides the fact that Percy has clearly sold out his family in order to further his own ambitions, the letter contains harbingers of doom for Dumbledore. Quote, I feel bound to tell you that Dumbledore may not be in charge of Hogwarts much longer, and the people who count have a very different and probably more accurate view of Barter's behavior. For Harry. But if you have any worries about this or have spotted anything else in Potter's behavior that is troubling to you, I urge you to speak to Dolores Umbridge, a really delightful woman. Oh, my God. For the Weasley clan. It pains me to criticize our parents, but I am afraid I can no longer live under their roof while they remain mixed up with the dangerous crowd around Dumbledore. And for the order. If you are writing to Mother at any point, you might tell her that a certain Sturgis Podmore, who is a great friend of Dumbledore's, has recently been sent to Askerman for trespass at the Ministry. Perhaps that will open their eyes to the kind of petty criminals with whom they are currently rubbing shoulders. The second worsening war, like the first, will be a civil war. Families, even, will be torn apart by this. Percy has always been a git, but this is an outright declaration of the battle lines we discussed in our last episode. What side is Percy on and what side he thinks Ron belongs on? His note that Ron should check the next day's profit for more info on changes to come at Hogwarts is also deeply foreboding. What fresh hell awaits? Is that the High Inquisitor's music? Gong, gong, gong. For Harry, the letter, quote, made his situation real to him as nothing else had. Seamus, a dorm maiden and friend, turning on him was bad enough. But Seamus, you know... Seamus is just talking about hearsay that he read in The Prophet. This is worse. Percy. Percy was part of Harry's adopted family. Yes. Only serious, Harry thinks, can understand. As Hermione helps them with their homework, leading to this delightful exchange, Hermione, you're honestly the most wonderful person I've ever met, said Ron weakly. And if I'm ever rude to you again, I'll know you're back to normal, said Hermione. <laughs> as that's playing out, Harry's thinking about Sirius. And as he's thinking about him, his godfather appears in the fire in the Gryffindor common room. This, again, is reckless stuff, as the flu network is being monitored, which Sirius knows, given that the method of transport was off limits to Harry when the advanced guard moved him from Privet Drive. But Sirius wanted to check in ASAP after he read the letter. In fact, he's been checking in once an hour, he says. But Sirius, this is taking an awful risk, Hermione began. You sound like Molly, said Sirius. This was the only way I could come up with of answering Harry's letter without resorting to a code. 
and codes are breakable. Should that be the tagline for season two of Law and Order? Codes are breakable? <laughs> it's really like, again, codes are fucking breakable. Master spy, my guy. It's amazing stuff. Like, Amazing stuff. He imagine speaking on a tapped phone and going, "Wait, why didn't you just send me a li- codes a breakable guy? Listen, here's everything on the tapped line. I'm about to tell you everything that's going on." Come on. Brutal. They talk about Harry's scar. Harry says that Dumbledore told him that the pain occurred when Voldemort felt a strong emotion. Sirius says, "Well, now he's back. It's bound to hurt more often." So you don't think it had anything to do with Umbridge touching me when I was in detention with her? Harry asks. I doubt it, said Sirius. I know her by reputation. And I'm sure she's no Death Eater. Harry mentions that she's foul enough to be one, and Sirius imparts an important bit of wisdom. Quote, the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters. This is another J.K. Rowling hallmark, incomparable wisdom thrown into the middle of a conversation. The world so often feels like it's broken into extremes. For Harry, for all of us. And sometimes it is. But most of the time, it's a spectrum of humanity and emotion and intention. Harry, who is so often guided by the desire to do right and to try to save others, doesn't think this way. He's always chasing good. And everyone who stands in his way is a foe. Snape, of course, will emerge as the series' prime embodiment of this line from Sirius. A literal Death Eater turned brave spy. A warrior fighting for justice, guided by love, but also never elevating above his bullying and bitter ways. But countless others fit the mold, too, including, as we will learn over the course of the series, Dumbledore, often held up as a bastion of light and good, and in many ways, a true hero worthy of our love, but also someone who was sorely tempted by power and who never trusted himself around it thereafter. Again, though, Umbridge, truly the worst. When Sirius tells them that Umbridge is responsible for the legislation that makes it almost impossible for Lupin to have a job, Harry feels his hatred bubble. When the kids tell Sirius that Umbridge isn't letting them do magic in class, Sirius explains why. Fudge and company are concerned that Dumbledore is assembling a private army of students to take on the ministry. That's why Umbridge is there. He says, Fudge doesn't want you trained in combat. And ironically, they are kind of right, except for the target. The target is Voldemort and his Death Eaters. That's who Dumbledore and the Order are fighting against and who Harry and company want to be ready to face. But it is ironic that by trying to keep Harry and his friends from forming an army, they in fact spur the formation of one, Dumbledore's army. Sirius says it's a matter of time before Fudge, who's getting more paranoid by the day, has Dumbledore arrested, another harbinger that proves true, at least in intention. Fudge and his minions will be no match for Dumbledore. When they ask for more news, Sirius, with bitterness that promises future recklessness, says he doesn't know much. It's just been him and Creature at the house. He does, however, tell them not to worry about Hagrid. He was supposed to be back by then. Now it's true. But Dumbledore isn't worried. Sirius then floats meeting them during their next Hogsmeade visit. And they are all like, dude, no. (laughs) What? (laughs) Have you not read The Prophet? He's not only unconcerned about that, but he actually throws some really kind of shitty shade at him. You're less like your father than I thought, he said finally, a definite coolness in his voice. The risk would have been what made it fun for James. This cuts deep, and it's the first real fracture between Sirius and Harry, and a true test for Harry. What matters more, Sirius being happy or doing what Harry knows is smart and right? Sirius being happy or Sirius being alive? Right. And is Sirius as cranky or so driven by feelings of inadequacy and boredom that he'll risk everything? Pissed, he makes an excuse and leaves. And a final harbinger for us. 
from the book, there was a tiny pop in the place where Sirius's head had been was flickering flame once more. Ugh, I just got to chill. That line from him about James is so fucked up. It's honestly like indicative of how truly alone and emotionally damaged he is and how he just wants a friend how much he really does love Harry that Harry rejecting him even for reasons that make complete sense hurts yes and that pain is compounded because of what Harry represents right. not he only wants, Harry in the present but that right. connection to the he past. I mean stated right there he kind of does want Harry to be James totally. he wishes that he was in a certain way it's Ugh, fucked up terrible but that was really fucked up on Sirius's part to say that not cool. Not cool. <laughs> Not cool at all. Jason? Yeah. Don't worry. You're just as sane as I am. As such, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Thestrals. Ah, Thestrals. Midway through Order of the Phoenix, Hagrid takes the Care of Magical Creatures class on a field trip into the forest to see, or for most of the students, not to see, Thestrals. Parvati is immediately alarmed. They're really, really unlucky, she cries. They're supposed to bring all sorts of horrible misfortune on people who see them. Hagrid, naturally, stands up for the creatures. He'll stand up for any creature, though, to be fair. No, 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 he says. That's just superstition. That is, they aren't unlucky. They're dead clever and useful. And unlike with some other Fantastic beasts he's defended in the past. Remember the giant spiders and blasted into Scrooots. How could we forget? Who, how could we? In this case, Hagrid is right. Thestrals get a bad rap, though it's not hard to discern why. Only those who have witnessed death and truly internalized and grappled with that experience can see them. So the winged horses are naturally associated with death. They're known as harbingers of misfortune and considered dangerous by the ministry, even though as rolling notes on Pottermore, Thestrals are not marks of ill omen, nor their spooky appearance notwithstanding, are they in any way threatening to humans. They do have a spooky appearance, at least, with dragon-like faces and white glittering pupilless eyes and big bony horse-like bodies with leathery wings like a bat's. Their behavior is generally predatory, too, though not towards humans. They're lured by the scent of blood and possess sharp fangs that they use to slash at their prey, which includes both animals on the ground and in the air. But outside their appearance and eating habits, Thestrals aren't scary, and Hagrid is right that they're dead clever and useful. They're trustworthy, obedient. They have incredible senses of smell and direction, and like owls, they can understand exactly where to go even if just given the destination rather than specific step-by-step instructions. They can carry human riders and fly very fast, as we will see later in order. Harry observes that he had never flown so fast as when he rode on a Thestral. And this is a guy who's accustomed remember, to traveling via Firebolt. And then there is the Thestral's tail hair, which is a powerful but difficult-to-use substance that's important for one large reason. According to a post on JKR's old website, it serves as the core for the legendary Elder Wand. The death stick. The boomstick. That connection makes sense, given the Elder Wand's relationship, of course, with death. As the Thestral's greatest notoriety comes from their own such relationship, most students like Ron in this section of order think the Hogwarts carriages just move by themselves because they don't have any experiences with death and therefore cannot see the creatures. Harry has seen death now. But as Rowling writes on Pottermore, being able to see Thestrals is a sign that the beholder has witnessed death and gained an emotional understanding of what death means. Harry Potter was unable to see Thestrals for years after his mother was killed in front of him because being that he was basically an infant, when the murder happened, he'd been unable to comprehend his own loss. Even after the death of Cedric Diggory, weeks passed before the full import of that murder 
was finally born upon him. Only at this point did the Thestrals that pull the carriages from Hogsmeade Station to Hogwarts Castle become visible to him. That time it takes for this experience to sink in varies, of course, from person to person. Luna Lovegood can see Thestrals from the start of her Hogwarts career because as Rowling writes, she is intuitive, spiritual, and unafraid of the afterlife. Damn right. Most intriguing is that the animals are native to the British Isles and are mostly seen only in that part of the world. However, Rowling says, there are equivalent creatures in other countries. We do wonder, as we explore more of the magical world and fantastic beasts, if those unknown creatures might come into play. Although we do see them pulling the That's carriage right. on Grindelwald's escaped, as depicted in the Lego, in the Lego set. <laughs> the famous spoiler Fire Lego. spoiler now. Yeah. Love Thestral so much. So excited to talk about them more over the course of this book. We can save most of our takes for then. But it is just incredible and really a signature JKR achievement yes. to take something that many people think of as fearful and shameful and dirty and wrong mm -hmm. and to say, no, this is actually about growth and understanding. Yep. She's incredible. Jason? Yes. I must not <laughs> look like a baboon's backside because I have other shit to do, unlike Goyle. It's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order Chapters 10 through 14, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. When Snape says that he only takes the best students into his newt potions class, he notes that means some students will shortly be leaving his realm, referring to it as, quote, that happy moment of farewell. <laughs> He's Obviously, talking about Harry, and Harry's certainly ready to say goodbye. When Harry gets his potions owl result, he is devastated that his inability to continue to newt potions because of his score spells the end of his ambition to become an Auror. But he's also like, all right, I'm done with Snape. Not so fast, boys. First, Harry will get to continue on in potions because Slughorn will be teaching the class next year, not Snape. And Slughorn, he will have a more relaxed standard for exams. Oh, yeah, he will. <laughs> and second, Snape will actually teach Harry more meaningfully than ever in Harry's sixth year, not only as Harry's new defense against the dark arts professor, but crucially as the secret author of Harry's favorite textbook, the Half-Blood Prince's Potions book. Man, I can't, Shuggy Slughorn, <laughs> love that guy, because if you're in with him, you're just passing that class. Oh. Listen, you bring some crystallized pineapple, you are good to go. He will love you. Number two, speaking of Aurors, in these chapters, Ron expresses his ambition to become one, but is also like, oh yeah, those are the best of the best, and will I make it? Well, he'll become one, but only last two years. Hermione, meanwhile, talks about doing something worthwhile. How does going on to become, I don't know, Minister of Magic and Cursed Child suit you? <laughs> Hermie, relatedly. Umbridge's attack on Hermione's credentials is extra amusing in light of Hermione's ultimate career path. Shouts to Ron, who quits I know. the vaunted order department to become a clerk in his <laughs> brother's joke shop. Not even like a partner. He's not even sharing in the proceeds. Seems like a great place to work. Hermione is like minister of magic and is like, yeah, my, my husband works as a clerk. He minds the shop. Man. Very tough. Someone's got to stock the pygmy puff. Noble work, a noble calling for Ron. I support him. Number three, speaking of life paths here, on the train, Neville mentions that it was recently his birthday, which is 
innocuous enough in the moment, but a great hint for us that, like Harry, Neville has a summer birthday. Yep. As the prophecy says, born as the seventh month dies. Never forget that the prophecy could have been about Neville. Neville Longbottom could have been the chosen one. Number four, lamenting their latest shitty teacher, Harry says, you know what it's like. Harry told us nobody wants the job. They say it's jinx. How right you are. We learn in Half-Blood Prince that this is actually true. Voldemort cursed the position when Dumbledore refused to give him the job. That's some petty, extra petty shit. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Number five, when Hermione tries to convince the fireplace visiting Sirius to be nice to creatures, she says, quote, after all, you are the only member of his family he's got left. Whew. If only that were true, friends. If only that were true. When Sirius orders Creature out in a few chapters, Creature will go to Narcissa Malfoy, nay black, Sirius's cousin, another member of the family. Number six. Among the many foul lines in Percy's letter to Ron is the following. I sincerely hope that in time they will realize how mistaken they were, and I shall, of course, be ready to accept a full apology when that day comes. Worth noting, Percy has the right idea here. He just has the ultimate outcome backwards. He'll be the one to realize the error of his ways and return at the final hour to beg his family's forgiveness. It's weird reading this because it's like <laughs> Percy does have the courage of his convictions in a he weird does. way. It's also like, just truly a misread on literally everyone. Yeah, though. it's like he <laughs> reads it 100% wrong, yeah. but he's doing what he believes in. He's all I respect. That all <laughs> in a weird way, but my dude, you got it wrong. That was like very Taiwanian of you. I, I respect and that. I respect that. Man, imagine Korean. imagine Taiwan and Percy. Ah, Percy. Yes. Polishing the prefix badge. No, well, I'll say I this. Respect I respect that. that. Taiwan would be like, you never turn against your family. What the fuck are you yeah, doing? That's right. Are you an idiot? All about the legacy. It's all about the, I don't care if Arthur and Molly are like, actually, we eat dung beetles now. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something Filch would be into. Number seven. Finally, two notes about Fantastic Beasts. First, Luna gives us our first crumple-horned snorkack mention here. Yes. This matters because when Harry, Ron, and Hermione visit Mr. Lovegood, in the seventh book, to seek information on the Deathly Hallows, they see an erumpent horn. He insists that it is a snorkack horn. But our trio is right. And when a spell eventually hits the horn in their ensuing near-kidnap, eventual escape, the horn blows up, destroying most of the house. And then, of course, secondly, bow truckles, described here as menacing-ish and capable of inflicting physical harm. But as we'll see in the first Fantastic Beast movie, when we get to hang out with Newt and the dude Pickett, they're really quite cute and sweet and smart. Yeah. Very loyal, dead useful when you need a lock picked. Yeah. Also, we learn here that Botruckles guard wand trees. Now, we know from the way this movie is being marketed that the second Fantastic Beast film is clearly going to go heavy on the Elder Wand. Just throw this out there. This is probably like ludicrous, but could Pickett, a guardian of wand trees, perhaps have a bigger role to play than we realize in a movie that's going to go heavy on wand lore? Who knows if it'll be the second movie or at some point in the yeah. franchise. I want Pickett to be the star. That's what I'm saying. No, oh, Pickett. Love him. Mal, I, unlike you, have been made a prefect, which means that I, unlike you, have the power to hand out the house cup. Rude. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature. Or a piece of headwear that compelled us the most. And today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the house cup to... 
Oh, the sorting hat with a banger. Yes. Real talk here. The sorting hat is doing more than most people, than most witches and wizards, to attempt to rally the troops and strengthen the war effort against Voldemort. In a story often defined by stubbornness and willful behavior, the hat shows a really remarkable self-awareness, questioning the wisdom of the system from which it itself draws its entire purpose. How startling to hear the sorting hat be like, what am I doing? Incredible. Also, look, the hat has bars. Really fire bars. I mean, this is just fabulous work here. Grammy worthy, maybe even Pulitzer worthy. You know, maybe Nobel Prize worthy. I mean, this is about war. Also, like the response to the hat was very like, Ooh, oh, it was really cool. We've witnessed an yeah, advancement we, in the art form. Yeah. Shouts to the hat. Truly, if members of the ministry had even an iota of sense yes. to match the hat, Voldemort might not have returned in the first place. All right, friends. Binge Beyond Measure is man's greatest treasure. Yes. Thanks, as always, to our own goblin crushers, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Order, chapters 15 through 19. Ooh, can't believe we're that far already. Until then, remember, you must not tell lies. Sorry, I didn't realize the stink sap was so stinky and that it would would do that, guys. It's my bad.